So hello and welcome to the GCU Law Podcast. My name is Sinead Stevenson-McCabe and I co-run this podcast with our brilliant students, Issa Mahmood and Lucy McKay. And today we are delighted to be joined by Cameron Wong-McDermott. Cameron is a Scots qualified lawyer currently working at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, the national body charged with promoting and upholding equality and the law in Scotland, England and Wales. Before this, Cameron was a lawyer at the European Court of Human Rights, where he was responsible for, amongst other things, applications from the UK and Ireland. Cameron is a human rights lawyer by trade and a passionate advocate for access to justice, and we are delighted to have him join us today. So thank you for being with us, Cameron. And I'll hand over now to Lucy. Hello. Hi Cameron, thank you so much hi, hi, for joining us. Um, we're hoping just to start off as we do most of our podcasts with you just talking us through your career journey so far. So from law student to where you are currently. Sure, yeah, no problem. It's, it's actually not a very long story because I graduated in 2013 from a, a rival Glasgow University. Um, so where do I start? So Throughout university, I was, I was, you know, I was really passionate about human rights and access to justice, as Sinead was saying, um, and I knew quite early on that I wanted to work in human rights. Um, what that looked like and what a role in human rights looked like was um, not very clear to me. I have to say, I think in my in my in my dreams, I wanted to be like a human rights barrister in in, in London or something like that. Um, or working abroad and for the UN or something like that. Um, but after university, I actually had an offer of a traineeship and it was with a, a law firm in Edinburgh at the time. It was called Simpson and Marwick. It's now, it's now known as Clyde & Co. And uh, anyone who's got a, an Asian mother will know the pressures that they can put on you to get a paid job. So I really wanted to do a master's, but eventually I accepted the position at, at Clyde & Co or Simpson & Marwick. Um, so I did my diploma after, after um, graduating uh, also at Glasgow um, and then I went to, to work uh, at Clyde & Co. Um, the, the traineeship was a kind of litigation, uh, litigation only traineeship. So I did a lot of um, personal injury work a lot of road traffic accident cases, some kind of employer liability cases as well. Um, I was in the sheriff court quite a lot, which was quite exciting. Um, I have to say that overall, I, I, I personally didn't enjoy my traineeship, but I have to recognise that I actually took away quite a lot of um, quite a lot of tangible skills, particularly around advocacy. Um, you know, being able to put together a good set of written pleadings and, and being able to present them in court. Um, that, that's a real skill. Um, I stayed, um, I, I would, towards the end of my traineeship, I was looking for, um, I was looking to leave. So I had a couple of options, but the one thing that I still really wanted to do, I really wanted to do a master's. I really wanted to do a master's in human rights. Um, and I did, I did get accepted to do a master's abroad um, in, in Canada. Uh, and very fortunately, it was a kind of paid, it was a, I got a scholarship to do it. But at the same time, I also applied for this, this position at the European Court. 
And maybe to explain to the audience, um, the, the position is actually a junior professional programme and the formal title of it was the Assistant Lawyer Programme for the, the European Court of Human Rights. And they were looking for an assistant lawyer for the UK division. I didn't think in my wildest dreams that I would ever get that position, but I, I was kind of persuaded by my girlfriend um, to, to apply for it. And I'm really glad I did because uh, I, I, got, I got the position. So I ended up essentially choosing between that and, and going to do a master's. And again, you know, my mom came along and said, well, only one of those is paid. Um, so I, I, went to the, I went to the court and I spent four, four, nearly four years at the court. And I think Sinead was saying that, you know, there I was kind of responsible for processing applications um, from the UK and, and Ireland. I think that sounds like, uh, sounds quite vague, but actually the reality of our job was, you know, working, I kind of described it as a kind of partnership with the, the UK and Irish judge to, um, to kind of, you know, process, process the applications that were coming in. What that looked like on a daily basis was for more straightforward cases or cases that we would say were kind of more manifestly inadmissible, we, the registry lawyers, would be responsible for kind of drafting uh, a decision and that decision would be approved or not approved by the judge of um, the, the relevant country. For more complicated cases, we would be responsible for drafting what was called a kind of communication report. So essentially distilling the legal issues under the European Convention of Human Rights, um, focusing the issues, focusing the facts, and then asking the, the state party and the, the applicant to submit written submissions. And then there on we'd be working in partnership with the judge to kind of you know, draft, draft the decision. Um, so, I mean, I was involved in some of the really exciting cases at the court. And I think one of the, one, the ones that stand out one of the ones that stands out for me is a case called Yunyani against the UK, um, which is uh, a case about uh, Article 8 and immigration. Um, it was a deportation case. And eventually, I think there was a, we found that this gentleman's deportation to Nigeria was um, in breach of his Article 8 rights. He had been deported without his children and family who one of his children couldn't actually come and visit him in Nigeria because I think he had a, a heart condition um, and couldn't leave the country. That, that case also looked at the kind of immigration rules as well and whether the immigration rules struck a fair balance between Article 8 and the, the interests of those being subject to immigration decisions. So it was a really exciting case. And we also did a lot of research as well, research on kind of bigger grand chamber cases I remember doing a bit of research for uh, a case that your students might be aware of, particularly if they're interested in um, bulk interception of communication data, um, kind of spy spy stuff. Um, it was Big Brother Watch against the UK. So I did a bit of research around that um, and did a lot of talks, trainings, kind of capacity building work for NGOs that would come and visit the court as well. And it was just a really, exciting. I think Sinead's worked abroad in an international organization before as well. It's, it's, it's really exciting being, you know, working in an organization with um, 47 other um, cultures, you know, 47 members of the Council of Europe, of which the court is, uh, is one of the organizations of the, the Council of Europe. 
and it was really exciting just you know talking about the kind of big human rights issues of of the day and yeah it was brilliant um so I, I was there for four years and I think there was a feeling towards the end of my time at the court that I really wanted even though I enjoyed talking about these issues at a very high level I really wanted to put into practice what I'd actually learned at the court and mm. you know back in Scotland on domestic issues you know I would be away in Strasbourg where the court's based hearing my friends working on these issues and feeling like we're we're almost at the court dealing we were dealing with these issues you know at the very end stage you know um and I wanted to work on you know stopping them from happening in the first place um there was also a kind of feeling that I was abroad for four years at that point and wanted to be closer to my family and um, my partner who um was living in, in in Glasgow at the time so i I accepted the position, applied for a position, accepted the position with the Equality and Human Rights Commission um, based in, well, there's four offices, um, but I wanted to be based in Glasgow for obvious reasons. Um, and I think Sinead was explaining that they, for your audience who aren't aware of the commission, they're a national equality body for Scotland, England and Wales, and they're responsible for um, enforcing the, the Equality Act. They're also in Scotland, uh, well, they're also a national human rights institution and they share um, their human rights mandate. So the mandate for promoting and protecting human rights um, in Scotland with the Scottish Human Rights Commission. So sometimes my, even my friends get very confused about which organisation I work for. So currently I work for the Quality Human Rights Commission, but just to make your audience aware, there is also a Scottish Human Rights Commission. So we sometimes work in partnership with them to deal with human rights issues in Scotland. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, my, my role at the, the commission is, is extremely varied. So I do, um, uh, I do a lot of litigation and enforcement work. So under the Equality Act 2006, where the commission derives its powers from, there are a series of litigation and enforcement powers. There's also the power to hold inquiries or investigations on equality matters. So I've been involved in, you know, providing legal advice for that. Um, I'm really privileged, you know, in just the space of a year. So I started this job during a pandemic. Um, in the space of a year, I've done two um, strategic interventions with the Equality Human Rights Commission. One of those interventions related to a case involving an adult with incapacity, but I can't say too much more about that one because the okay. substantive proceedings are still ongoing. Um, but I also did uh, an intervention involving uh, a prisoner who um, was challenging a decision, was judicially reviewing a decision um, to refuse him to visit an ill and sick relative outside of the prison. And we intervened to make submissions about um, the test for judicial review and to grant permission for judicial review. So that's reasonable prospects of success. We thought that the the, the decision to refuse this um, person, this prisoner, um, permission for judicial review. I think the judge applied the test too rigidly. Um, so that was one, one example of a strategic intervention that we were involved in that I kind of did all the legal, did the legal work for. So that was very interesting. But beyond that, we do a lot of um, trainings and capacity building work. So similar to the kind of work I was doing at the court, but you know, in relation to the Equality Act, 
So it's a really, really interesting, uh, interesting job. I should also say that we do, one of the things that's been quite interesting in this role for me is that it's been the first chance that I've been involved in doing legal policy work. It's not something I've ever done before, but I've been quite excited about doing it. And probably the most exciting legal policy work that I've done so far relates to uh, the, the Overseas Operations Bill. Some of your audience might be aware of that bill. Uh, essentially, it, the government's bill sought to introduce a presumption against prosecution for um, criminal offences, certain criminal offences committed by soldiers in overseas operations. And I was responsible for kind of offering legal advice to shape the Commission's position on that bill, but also um, to inform legal briefings to Parliament. So that was, that was something I'd never done before. It was really, really exciting. Um, and we managed to secure some fairly major concessions as well in the final, the final act. So that's where we are. So it's a relatively short, what, eight years since, since graduating. So I've done a bit of sure, uh, bits of so, work. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose our question, kind of moving on to our equality um, line here, what has your experience been? Um, as opposed to put it quite, quite shortly. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, do you, is there, would you like to see more, I suppose, in terms of um, a kind of a more equal and diverse, diverse profession um, is essentially kind of what, what I'm wondering right now. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's a good question. I, I, did, main, I did use the word diverse earlier on to talk about, you know, the, 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 the people working at the court. I think I meant diverse in the sense of people coming from, you know, the 47 different countries and you'd have, you know, you'd be, you know, one day you'd be sitting having dinner with a Georgian person, for example, you'd be talking, I'd never been to Georgia and, you know, learning about, you know, Georgian traditions and that. But, you know, I, I think about, I think about diversity more from my own background. And I remember at the core, I think I may have been one of the only ethnic minority faces at the core. I remember that standing out to me, um, just based on the institution, what it stood for. Yeah, I was one of the few ethnic minority faces. That really kind of stuck with me a little bit. As well, during my traineeship at, at Clyde & Co, I was, again, probably the, well, I was definitely the only ethnic minority face in, in the Edinburgh office. Probably might not have been kind of in the wider um, firm, but definitely in the Edinburgh office. And, I just kind of got used to being, you know, in meetings, the only ethnic minority face. Um, and it's, yeah, it's something that sticks with me. Um, I suppose then, if it, you know, you're saying you're the only kind of, I suppose, ethnic minority person at these kind of meetings or the, these organisations, what what would the, you know, what is the challenge then, I suppose? Can you see, I suppose, potential challenge for people of, you know, an ethnic minority background coming in? Is there... Is there, I thought we've spoken about kind of role models. What would, would, would you kind of, you know, echo that? Or is there something else we're, we're perhaps missing? Yeah, Issa, I might absolutely echo that. I think it's something, it's something that kind of bristles with me because I feel like we have been talking about this for years. I mean, it was on the radar of firms when I was at university, which I appreciate wasn't a long time ago, but sometimes it feels like we're in a different world now than we were in, you know, 2009 when I started um, university but you know I still look at I mean I can only speak from the kind of areas that I've worked in but even in the Scottish legal professions you look at the top and there's not a lot of people f with 
from diverse backgrounds. And I don't just mean kind of diverse in terms of like ethnic minority faces, but I also mean kind of people from just, you know, had different experiences. I mean, one thing I'm always very upfront with people about when they speak to me about diversity is that I attended a, a private fee paying school and I met plenty of people like me in when I was working in Edinburgh in the kind of the legal profession in Edinburgh. Um, even though there weren't many ethnic minority faces, there were certainly a lot of people that spoke like me and had kind of same similar school experiences. Um, and I think that's slowly changing, um, but we there's still so much that needs to be done. And I, I think, you know, I was thinking about this over the weekend, you know, the kind of barriers to it. I think one of them is, and I, this is just my own personal view, but I don't know if firms value um, or place enough value on experiences that people have had that aren't traditional, inverted commas. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I grew up, you know, working in a takeaway, um, like a lot of people from, um, yeah, East Asian backgrounds. And, you know, I speak another language, I speak Cantonese. I mean, not quite as fluently as I did when I was younger, but certainly, you know, these were two experiences that were so important in my life that shaped who I am today. And I don't know if, you know, that's as valued as say, you know, having done an internship with a, a leading city law firm. I mean, I think the latter two, the latter points say more, sorry, the former points say more about me as a person than the fact that I did an internship with a law firm in Edinburgh. So I think so, there's need, there needs to be more focus on that. Yeah, there are particular things that we mean when we talk about what law firms are looking for when they talk about work experience as well. Like, what do they mean by work experience? Because yeah, yeah. It, it's not any type of work, is it? Although yeah. actually, ostensibly, the thing we're looking for is like work ethic and ability to manage time and all of that stuff, which you gain just as easily in a shop or a restaurant as you do being the person who does the photocopying in a lawyer's office but yeah. that's not necessarily how firms conceive of it and I think that that is a big yeah it is it's, it's a big culture shift we need to to see yeah but when when we were speaking Sinead about it and it was quite interesting that Cameron said the same thing when, when I grew up you know I worked in a charity and a big kind of and a, a radio station in the south side of Glasgow you wouldn't necessarily attribute that to law would you I, mean, I think Cameron had the same thing as was as was growing up as was in, in a in an East Asian as was restaurant takeaway or, or other experiences mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be these two that we've cited but you know firms don't you know when we're speaking about work experience apparently um, um photocopying um and a we law firm is, is better and then you know being you know having these leadership skills and having this kind of diverse background um but I think that was just an interesting point that Cameron made. I thought that was quite, um, it's quite, we were on the same kind of wavelength, I suppose, and I'm always kind of cautious. I'm like, oh, am I just, am I just spouting nonsense? Is that just me? Am I just being about, but it was quite, quite interesting that it was that kind of uh, ranges across different uh, backgrounds and the same kind of uh, thought I shared, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. I think, yeah, that's a really good point, Issa, but I think there's also another thing as well about internships. I remember when, you know, I, I, I started doing internships when I was at uni, maybe in 2012 and at the time not all of them were paid um yeah yeah I think some of them might be now but certainly back in that those days they weren't yeah. paid and you yeah. need to think about who that opens the door for because we know that if you do an internship you've got a 
a reasonable chance of maybe securing a traineeship, for example. Um, similarly, actually, there's a good point is that the Council of Europe as well, Council of Europe was not a diverse in terms of, you know, these kind of people from diverse backgrounds. It wasn't a particularly diverse place. Um, and one of the reasons for that was because a lot of people who got their first, you know, their, their foot in the door did so through an unpaid six month internship. And what would happen is, you know, after you did the six month internship, if you were, you know, reasonably competent, you might be offered a temporary contract. And, and people just, you know, subsisted on kind of temporary contracts after temporary contracts. Most of my friends at the Council of Europe were on temporary contracts, but they, most of them got their first in through rather than a kind of formal process, formal application process, like the, the junior professional program that I was doing at the court, most of them just got in through a six month internship. And we need to think about who that really opens the door for. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not particularly great. And I think as well, the things about, you know, the prob what, what that means, what, what, what's the problems does that pose for an organization if it doesn't have a, um, a, a diverse a workforce? I think if we're talking about what firms can do, I think we need to kind of think more, you know, move away from diversity, looking like a kind of tick box exercise yeah. and starting to think seriously about why inclusion and diversity in a firm is so important for, you know, just even things like, you know, business decisions. Um, but, you know, in the human rights world, we're thinking about, you know, thinking about the Council of Europe did a lot of work around Roma rights, but actually... My understanding yeah. was that incredibly few um, people from a Roma background at the Council of Europe. So what, you know, people who don't, can't bring that lived experience to the table, I mean, that does affect you know, decision-making. Um, I think, Isa, you, you were saying as well, kind of the role models as well. What, what does that say if, you know, our Supreme Court doesn't have any ethnic minorities or only has, I think, now two, two women? Um, it's not it's not good what is that you know how does that affect kind of judgment making as well we, we had the you know edinburgh university the feminist judgment project which has been fantastic you know re-examining ju judgments through a feminist lens i mean these things we, we need to kind of think more about and i think firms need to appreciate the importance of diversity and inclusion and move away from kind of checkbox exercise my final question i suppose, I suppose to yourself camera would be what would your advice now looking back, I suppose, on your, on your uh, university, on schooling, on your early, uh, shall we say, employment life, what would your advice be uh, to work, uh, for students that want to work in human rights? I suppose, I suppose I know, mm -hmm. I've talked to Lucy and Sinead about this. We've been told that, oh, it's a secondary job and don't make your money there. You should go into a commercial field or, or something like that. Um, first, then, do, you know, do that on the side. But, you know, for someone that actually works in that field, what would, I suppose, your, your more inclined to give a give a give a better opinion on the matter yeah sure Isa. and i'm really sorry because the answer i'm going to give you is a really long and windy <laughs> winding <laughs> answer um because i i have actually well, i don't want to sound big-headed but I've been, i have been asked quite a lot about how do you get into human rights law how do you become a human rights yeah. lawyer and i think when i get asked that i always take a step back and i always ask but what do you mean by a human rights lawyer what kind of role are you referring to because actually human rights is so wide uh, so wide and it intersects in so many different areas of law and I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast that when I wanted to be a human rights lawyer I think I had a very kind of like tunnel vision I I, I imagined that a human rights 
lawyer is somebody that works for Doughty Street Chambers and brings judicial reviews against the UK government every second day, um, or that they, they worked for the UN or worked for the ICC, like, like Sinead. But actually, you know, especially now that I'm doing this job, I actually realised that, you know, criminal solicitors deal with human rights quite a lot. So do people who work in, in children's rights and people who work in mental health or adults with incapacity law, people who work in charities, people who work in um, kind of NGOs. So I think actually recognising first and foremost that there are so many different potential specialisms, so many different types of roles as well. So it's not just, I think when I, you know, I was thinking about being a barrister or a solicitor or an advocate, but actually, have you ever thought about being like a legal officer for an NGO? Or have you thought about instead of just doing strategic litigation or um, enforcement work, have you thought about legal policy? There's a whole world of legal policy <laughs> um, out there that, you know, it's really interesting. And I, it was certainly something that I never thought about when I was at university because there was a lot of chat about litigation and, and that sort of work, but not enough people coming and saying, you know, there's legal officer roles out there. Um, we need people who can think about policy, think about um, strategy. Um, so that's that's one of the first things I would probably say. Um, consider different roles. Think about what kind of law you want to, what kind of human rights law you want to do. Um, I think second, I would say like just take out a piece of paper and map the different organisations. There are so many organisations in Scotland alone that touch that do work relating to human rights so you've got you know the SHRC you've got the EHRC but you've got you know other um, smaller law firms um, you know immigration firms do you know human rights lots of human rights work and I think they're one of the first um, types of law firms I think about when I think about human rights work um, criminal law criminal law firms also there's um, there's clan child law I think they do a lot of work around children's rights as well there's a um, uh, there's a children's and young people's commissioner of Scotland as well, who are kind of similar regulatory body like the EHRC and the SHRC. Um, so map the organisations. I think you can find out so much about the different job opportunities just by you know sitting down and doing research and drawing out a map. Um, my other bit of advice as well, and I think it's such a cliche, but it's so important is networking because I when I first came into um, law school I didn't know any lawyers I didn't my family didn't know any lawyers so I had to start from scratch you know my, my parents didn't go to university so I had to start from scratch and you kind of just slowly build your network organically you you meet people and talk to people about their backgrounds and how they um, got on to the career path to take on to where they are now. It's not just about speaking to people and finding out what the latest job opportunities are, but you know, getting tangible advice, asking them how they got to where they are and what tips and advice. And I think most people, I'd like to think most people are kind of like me that are just happy to give up their time to speak to other people you're wanting to enter the profession or to um, follow a type of career path. And also like when we think about networking as well, like. It's not just thinking about people, you know, on the career path who you want to, but also thinking about your kind of closer network, your friends, um, your family. You know, I spoke a lot about my mum, but, you know, she has actually given some pretty sound advice over the years, um, you know, about law. Um, 
So think about your support network, because if you're going to embark on a difficult career path, you're going to need your your support network around you. Um, And I think probably the most important bit of advice I have is actually, it focuses around experience, but recognising that there is actually no defined career path to becoming a human rights lawyer. You You can follow any path. So like me, we were thinking about we would, I was talking about starting off in a commercial law firm. It wasn't something I wanted to do. I didn't particularly enjoy my time there, but I look back today and think, God, there's so many skills that I've, I still rely on today that I first picked up you know, at, at Clyde & Co in, in Edinburgh when I was doing the, the RTAs and the, the road traffic accident cases, the personal injury cases. They seemed boring at the time, but I realised now that I was actually picking up bucket loads of experience. Um, so just recognising that there is no wrong career path, that you can you can use skills from every experience that you had. I think Isa, you were talking about um, podcasts and the radio station as well. Yeah. So much. Like, I'm just thinking like, you know, thinking about the skills that you can talk about, you know, when you're applying for jobs and applying for, say, for example, like, solicitor jobs so I think that's that's what I would what I try to emphasize to everybody that's um that kind of asked me that question because there's always a kind of there's always a real strong desire to start off where you want to end up but it never really works out that way and to recognize that you actually I and probably to give the example of myself you know I still haven't worked it out what exactly I want to do in human rights. I mean, I've just started doing the kind of legal policy work, which I've mentioned. And I actually think that I enjoy doing legal policy work far more than I, you know, enjoy doing litigation work. I actually think I'm better at doing it. And I've only just realised that at age 29, that I actually might not be cut out to be a barrister that I thought I wanted to be when I was 21. And actually, I don't think that path's right for me. So I'm going to take a completely different path. So I think that's that's something that I would really bear in mind that you know you don't have to have worked it all out when you're 21 or whatever age you graduate at. Um, so I think that's quite important as well. I'm just so glad. I think we are incredibly lucky. Um, Lucy and Anissa, I think we're incredibly lucky to have young lawyers like you speaking to us about it, Cameron, because that's how you start creating culture change, is actually having conversations like like this. Absolutely. So generous with your time and yeah, so thank you.